Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. If you know me, you know how obsessed I am with live performance. To me, nothing replaces being in a theater and the lights going down and the orchestra starts to play and that first moment of magic. And I know the way I feel about theater, some people feel about sports or opera or dance or comedy or food. And what if there was a place that you could go and find out which live events are going on near you that night, and then for a discount price, you can get off your couch, put down that clicker, and experience the magic that is live performance. Well, there is a place, goldstar.com. You just go to that website, you type in your city, and every amazing live event will be listed at discount prices. Theater, dance, comedy, film, food, concerts, sports, no more staying home. You are going to go out and build memories and experiences that expand your mind and heart through live performance with goldstar.com. Goldstar is in 26 cities around the country with over 8 million members already signed up to find out what event is going on near you. So go to goldstar.com. Get out of your house and build memories that are magic for you and your family. Expand your mind, expand your hearts. Go see live performance by using goldstar.com. Tell them Alana sent you. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's Alana and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day. Every little thing's gonna be a-okay. Hey everyone, new episodes of Little Known Facts drop every Monday and you can find them on your favorite podcast provider. Also, if you go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com, you'll find behind the scenes photos, videos, and interviews, and lots more on the gallery page. And if you are loving these intimate, candid conversations with all the artists who come on the show, please head over to the contributions page. I depend on these donations to continue to bring you these interviews every week. So if you love the show, please donate. Little known fact about my guest today, he and Lin-Manuel Miranda have collaborated time and time again and have created some of the most important work in the American theater. When I asked him if they've ever had a fight, he said, no, I'm a fervent believer in collaboration with Harmony. Welcome the director of Hamilton and many other things, Thomas Kale, to the podcast. Hey, everyone. My guest today is the Tony and Emmy Award-winning director, Thomas Kale. On Broadway, he's directed Hamilton, In the Heights, Lombardi, and Magic Bird. He's the co-creator of the hip-hop comedy improv show Freestyle of Supreme. Recently, he directed and produced the FX limited series Fosse Verdon. He also directed Grease Live, which is why he won an Emmy. He was awarded the Kennedy Center Honor in 2018, and this month he will be honored by SAY, an organization that supports young people who stutter. He has done a lot of things in his very young life, and we're going to try to talk about all of them. So I just want to welcome Thomas Kale to the podcast, and I also want to ask you, most people call you Tommy. Which would you, who, would you, who do you want to be today? I will be Tommy today, which is who I am every day. You are. I had an old best friend when I was a kid whose name was Thomas, Thomas Flint. And so I became Tommy then. But when I got to New York, I thought, well, there's only one director whose name is Tommy with a one-syllable last name, and that's Tommy Toon. Right. And so I thought, okay, for anything that's written, I'll be Thomas. But 94% of the people that I know call me Tommy, and then 6% of them call me Thomas. And then I say, can you call me Tommy? And then... 5% 
four other percent call me Tom and I don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> well, the four percent. Uh, it's 104 percent of people. I just want to make sure that everyone knows that I'm fully aware of that. I did not know there would be math. Um, full disclosure, dear listeners, this is a very early Sunday morning interview. I think Tommy Kale is probably the only person I would do this for. Um, and I'm so in awe of him because is they that always why you're say, crying? You I'm seem, crying. You I also emotional. have allergies. <laughs> Both things are true, but I would be crying even if I didn't have allergies. I think that, you know, there's that phrase, want something done, ask a busy person. And it is no small thing that with all the things you have going on, literally just getting off a flight from Chicago where the Hamilton ex- exhibition, it was the Hamilton. Now it's, it's not the Hamilton. It's hashtag it's- Hammex. We realized it was not a tent. It's not. Although it's a, it's a airplane hangar. It's a full on installation. It's 35,000 square feet, which is a football field size. David Corns really needs to take a nap. What's wrong with him? A lot. How long is this podcast? <laughs> well, he was here for so long that we had to make his a two part episode because he has a lot to say about a lot of things. Classic Corns. Yeah. Make a mistake, ask him a question. <laughs> Um, well, David, you can respond at a later date to this. I want to, um, I want to ask you something because when you were accepting your Tony award for Hamilton, you talk about your sisters, um, and you say the sweetest thing. And I have two kids and my dream is one day, it's not necessarily, they will need to win an award, but there will be an opportunity for them to say out loud in front of a lot of people, what they mean to each other. That's kind of the dream when you have kids, not so much what your relationship is with them, but what happens for them in the future. So if we could start when you were named Thomas and then had a best friend named Tommy and Thomas and you were Tommy and all of that, um, just a tiny bit about what it was like growing up for you. Where did you grow up? Where are you in the family line? Well, I'm happy you asked this, first of all, because I just got off FaceTime with both of them simultaneously because we just figured out you could do that like on the way up here. Um, You're so high tech. Yes. And I am very much in the middle of two sisters. So everything about me is defined by that. So there were three kids. My older sister is three grades older than me. My younger sister, three grades younger. So it was like eighth grade, 12th grade, senior in college. We never overlapped. We were always kind of moving through. Right. Um, We all went to the school, same school systems, excuse me. same school one through six. My little sister went to somewhere slightly different. And then we all went to the same place, seven through 12. So we spent a lot of time together. My older sister and younger sister are absolute best friends now. And of course, back then when one person's 18 and the other person's 11, like there's not a lot of hanging out. And then you get into, you know, the post-college age and realize, oh, you're my sister. Yeah. So they're incredibly tight. We're all very, very close. My older sister lives in New York. My younger sister lives in Boston. And so I'm an uncle five times. My older sister has three little ones. My younger sister has two. And so, are you heavily involved in I'm, that I'm, life? I'm, uh, I'm, an, uh, I'm an uncle first and then everything else after that. Wow. And, you know, I didn't grow up. My, my mom has three brothers. My father has a sister, but they live pretty far away. So I didn't really know aunt and what that is. You know, yeah. uncle culture. I actually thought it was kind of like I, I thought, I didn't believe my friends would be like, my uncle's taking me. I was like, oh, is your uncle taking you? Is that a person that you know? And then when I held my my little nephew Will when he was three hours old in my arms, and I felt something that I didn't know I was capable of, that right. that kind of love. And I and I I only know having sisters, but when your sister makes the baby, right? Like it's a very different thing than my friends that their relationship to their kids that are brothers. At least you know, as I perceive it from the outside, and that's a wide generalization. But I will just say that getting to know my sisters as they became mothers uh, and then knowing their children and seeing the extensions um, that were uh, so clear, like, oh, so Charlotte is mom, right? Like, okay, so that one skipped a generation and that's mom and that one's you. So um, we grew up in uh, Alexandria, Virginia, suburb of D.C. And I just played sports my whole life. So I didn't do anything in the theater at all. Uh, Did you go see theater? Would you go to the then. Kennedy Center? And yeah, kind the Kennedy Center. Like... Yeah, like there's like some pictures of me very sad, dressed up, you know, with like a sweater and were saddle you a shoes. Family that dressed up to fly. Like, were you like we took <laughs> we did, outing we, seriously? Uh, we did take outing seriously at the, at the Kale household, but mostly in making me feel uncomfortable in wool things when I went like, to the Kennedy Center. It's too tight, right? So there's this really funny picture of me and my older sister standing at the Kennedy Center with that red carpet. You know, we'd go see like the Nutcracker or whatever would be there. Right. And I'd see a, shows that would come through there. I didn't go to arena stage or anything like that particularly. But 
like I saw Les Mis and a lot of the first nationals that would come through Starlight Express and things like that, you know, in the in the and 80s. probably school, right? Through school, you would in go school see we go on a, a trip, also. yeah, like occasionally. So, so yeah, the Kennedy Center really was my portal. Okay. You know, that that was my first exposure, but I had no concept that this was a job you could have. My father was an attorney. My mom runs the archive at a historical home. Oh. I didn't know anybody that made their living in Doing show this. business. Yeah, it, I mean, it being a creative person, not in this way. way. Yeah, not what in any kind way. of attorney like? A corporate litigation, and okay. my father sexy. He, my father liked the people management part mm-hmm. of practicing law, which I think is something that I really right. uh, learned from him because I love maintaining and managing companies. It's really exciting for me to get a chance to build relationships, have the relationships evolve, and if you're lucky enough to have a show that runs, start to make new companies or meet new people as they come in. And I think my dad was always really good at that part of it, and. My father was a singer in college. He was a whiff and poof. And my mom was a studio artist who ended up raising the kids and then studying museum education and going back to school in the 80s when we were all a little older and has been working at this historical home called Tudor Place in Washington, D.C. since the mid-90s. So when you say a studio artist, did she draw? Did she Yeah, paint? she drew and like just like she was just in- intensely creative huh. at a time when that that wasn't necessarily something that was an option for her to pursue. Right. But she had a lot of she had a lot of that in her, uh, and I think wasn't able to access it uh, in the way that you know she might have now. Um, but then when she found museum education and art history, I remember quizzing her on flashcards when I was probably like ten or eleven. So like in the you know mid to late eighties, and she went back to school. I feel like it uncovered a lot of her creativity and she does a lot of writing now and 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 research so she was telling me about lafayette in the early 2000s i was like mom no one cares about the marquis de lafayette we stopped talking about him yeah and um and then you know like lynn went down to, to place, yeah, yeah to do um some research my the home where my mom uh works in georgetown is a descendant of the custis family of martha washington so they have a connection to a lot of the to the lafayette and the washington stuff and so it's it's pretty funny how this the synchronicity in life is so, and also I was thinking when you talk about your father's management skills and obviously your mom's curiosity about history and art, mm-hmm. um, and you're having been an athlete, which is also both being a team player and a manager of a lot of people. Uh, you're absolutely right. It's kind of amazing, like in that Malcolm Gladwell, 10,000 hours of preparation for something, uh, from a very young age, you were surrounded by people, the luck of being born into this family, yes. who are interested in these things was are your parents natives of that area or were they transplants from someplace else? Transplants. My mother was from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. She okay. grew up in Squirrel Hill. And my father was born in New York City, but then raised in Merrick, Long Island from when he was 12 on. So, okay. so Long Island in Pittsburgh. And then they both went to school in Connecticut and knew they weren't going to go back where they were from. Went to, Wait, did they both go to Yale? No, my mom went to Connecticut College and my okay. dad went to Yale. Okay. Um, and they met, my dad was singing Quiet Girl. Uh, and two sleepy people were his songs, and my mom saw him sing. Uh, you know his his, his senior set. year, yeah, <laughs> um, his acapella her set, junior year, yeah. Um, back when that meant something, yeah. Um, and well, now then, Pitch Perfect has made oh, it you know mean what? something You're again right. in a You're big right. way. Yeah, that's it's very so true. cool now. It is. It is. Um, Thank you, Ben Platt. Also, it, yes, it's enjoying the revival it deserves. Jason Moore, Elizabeth <laughs> yes, Banks, all of um, them. So I um, I I would hear the story like that's how my my parents met, and then my dad um went to go study in London for a year. They went there, and then they moved to the Alexandria area and then have been there ever since, and now they live in Chevy Chase, Maryland. Uh, they moved when I was 19 to a block outside of Washington. They made it very convenient for my younger sister, right? although I had to drive you know, right. 14 so you hours a day. So you had to trek with so a hot potato is, in your hand. Yeah, exactly. I understand. It yeah, was yeah. a long walk to school for It was you. a very— At Sidwell Friends. <laughs> yes. It was, a, it was hard. And by the way, it was a long walk home after Sidwell <laughs> Friends, too. Um, exactly. But yeah, so I, I then commuted and drove with my older sister, and, and my dad worked at near DuPont Circle. So there weren't cast recordings. Uh, I mean, your father was musical, but you weren't like lying in bed with the, you know, no, no. Man of La Mancha cast recording in hand reading it. No, no. It, it was like um, Michael Jackson's Thriller and like Huey Lewis and the News and Bon Jovi. and All Def- good. You know, All yeah. good bands. And like Bobby Brown. And... Did you have posters on your childhood room wall? I did, but they were athletes. Okay. Like a- who? Who were your heroes? Ken Griffey Jr. was a baseball player. It was yeah. very important to me. Cal Ripken Junior, I love juniors. Um, these are both people who also had parents that played in the major leagues. Right. Calvin Junior, who was kind of like the local hero, played for the Baltimore Orioles, and then a guy named Frank Thomas, who was like six five, two seventy. So I had a lot in common with him. Um, as a, I wish this was a visual uh, well, situation so people would understand. Me, 
Do some Googling. Look up Thomas. Look um, up Thomas. But th- I had those those three things. And then Michael Jordan. I was obsessed with Michael Jordan. So I had like four Michael Jordan posters. And were you into sneakers? Like were you a sneaker collector? Yeah, but I didn't have a lot of, uh, like I-, I didn't have a lot of interest in getting them and keeping them nice. Right. I would just like wear them out until they broke. Yeah. Um, for they weren't collector's items were, for you. They, well, they might be now, yeah. but they are destroyed. So um, you played, did you play baseball? I played baseball and, and I soccer? played soccer. Yeah. Were those? Were you a wrestler also? No, I, I was friends with a lot of the wrestlers on my high school team, and so we ended up uh, having to defend ourselves when we were together. Yeah, um, you know when we were because they played a little rougher than I did. Um, but but no, I was always fast. I mean, like brawls and it like what? Like, well, yeah, like what? we'd go out and like if you had like two beers, like all of a sudden you'd be like, "Why is my shirt off?" <laughs> and we're wrestling. Um, I say that to myself all the time. Yeah, it was like yeah yeah. I mean, I broke my wrist doing. I mean, I was like an idiot. Oh um, my god! But that said, I was always fascinated by wrestling because I played these very team oriented sports. Right. Um, soccer mostly, baseball a lot, but I played both of them all all four years of high school. Uh, but I played like basketball for fun and, and other other things um more of the team nature i really struggled with individual sports i had a really bad temper and i was very hard on myself right so i never was that great at tennis and 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 i i liked you had a dis- McEnroe kind of vibe about you when you were playing yeah without okay. the skill um, okay. so it was really fun to be around and no headband are you like that in the room like are you no. the director throwing yeah yeah you obviously have done some deep research on me <laughs> i told you mandy gonzalez was here and she um, was like oh yeah, he's I, rough. I um no, I like w- th- it was always directed at myself. Okay, like I would never like so when I played team sports, I was you know I tried to be incredibly supportive of my teammates in the way that they were with me. But when there was no one else there, that was really hard for me. Right. So so sports like wrestling were fascinating because of the simplicity of it. It's you and one other person. Yeah. And I don't think I would have been particularly good at it, but I was. But I, I then had some friends that wrestled in college. I used to go to a lot of individual sports. I had another friend who played squash and I used to go watch these collegiate tournaments and I was fascinated by that one-on-one quality because baseball has a built-in one-on-one nature right. whereas soccer very rarely does. Right. And I always preferred soccer. And were you obsessed with it because you were like, wow, how did they do that without turning in on themselves and punishing themselves for not being good or th- what do you what do you mean by that? I don't know. I mean, I've I've never really thought about it uh especially not on sunday morning but yeah. i feel like maybe there was just something about just the the isolation of that you know that was something that i was probably both drawn to but a little afraid right. of you know because there is nothing else yeah it's just you and that other person you both want the same thing yeah you both are uh, are determined to go through the other person to get it mm-hmm. um and i just i don't know i, I just found myself really struck by how self-reliant you needed to be at a time when I think I was still finding out who I was and liked to rely on other people. And frankly, yeah. maybe I never found out who I was because I still like to rely on other people. But I like being accountable to a group. Yeah. And I like having people depend on me. I really th- thrive on that. That was always yeah. something I really loved. Even when, you know, what happened with my, with my sports career is I was very, very good at soccer until I was like 12 or 13. And then other people started to pass me by. And you know, even through like Magic Bird or this Fosse Verdon project, other things that have slashes in them, it does not yeah. apply to. Uh, I've long been fascinated by the idea of what happens to the athlete, the dancer, who dies twice. You mm-hmm. die when you stop dancing, and then you die when you die. Yeah. And so I had this kind of death At when I was 12 age. or 13, when I realized the thing that defined me was was not going to define me my whole life. So right. who am I? So I had this real transition where I had to figure out who I was because I wasn't Tommy the soccer player. I wasn't Tommy the baseball player. I wasn't good enough. And I watched other people accelerate past me, but I could see how the game should be played in my mind. I could could play the game in my brain at a very, very high level, but my body was not able to actualize that. So I started around that time being a camp counselor and a tutor and still playing sports, but I found myself in these situations where I could maybe see the thing, even if I couldn't do it, but I was tasked with articulating it to try to unify people. And I became much more of a coach on the field right. than, you know, one of the top players. So I want to ask, because I'm a parent now. And How I old think are your kids? about uh, 15 and 12. Oh, okay. Um, Boy, girl. Uh, my daughter is 15 and my okay. son is 12. Okay. And so often I'm in these situations where I'm like, they're going to face all sorts of realistic moments that you've just described. Were there things that your parents said to you when you were having a hard time with this transition that remain with you? Was anyone able to say anything that was helpful? I don't know that I expressed it. Mm-hmm. I think it might've been something I internalized. What I loved about sports and my parents were incredibly encouraging of me playing sports. Are they sports fanatics or not? 
particularly. No, and and neither of them played sports, right. but they just they saw a benefit in it that I probably didn't recognize at the time, which is sports teaches you how to win and lose gracefully mm-hmm. because no one goes undefeated. Right. So you will be confronted no matter with a situation. Who you are, what right. your team's ranking. Yeah. You could you could practice every day for six months and go out there and it just doesn't happen that day. You could not practice, go out there and win. Yeah. You start to realize the randomness of yeah. things. Yeah. Um and you have to grapple with losing. Yeah. And I think it's really important at an early age Mark Marin talks about this. He's a podcast I listen to a lot. And he talks about how he thinks that he struggled because he didn't play sports because he never learned how to lose. Yeah. And you also never learn how to win if, you know, and because these, you know, these ecosystems that are created in sports, much like they are in theater or film and television, it's a group of people that go into the trenches together and they're the only ones who really understand. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm always intensely moved and I'll come back to what my parents could or couldn't say to me, yeah. I promise. Um, you know, after a boxing match and you watch the boxers just weep in each other's arms because to walk into that ring, what does it actually mm-hmm. take? When you strip away everything else, these two women or these two men are the ones that are actually getting into the center of the ring. And I think what my parents did, you know, either in their action or in what they said to me was was encourage me to keep going even if I wasn't the best player anymore. Mm-hmm. And that I never talked about quitting, but they I, they saw that I used to play 90 minutes a game and then I was playing 60 and then right. I was playing 45 and I was playing 30, but they never treated that um, they still came as, to the game. Yeah, as a diminution. You know, it was yeah. like, it's like, oh, well, that's where you are. That's what you do now. Yeah. Um, and my parents were, you know, I went to summer camp from 11 to 19. That was a really seminal time for me. I was a camper from 11 to 14 and then a counselor from 15 to 19 at this What camp this did camp you go to? This camp called Greenbrier in West Virginia, in Alderson, West Virginia. And it was like a very um, do-everything camp. You know, you swim, you canoe, you play sports, you build a campfire, you have, have lots a of Have a lanyard. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there were some real lanyard work then. Well, I understand your lanyard. <laughs> your lanyard work is beautiful. Um, and And I think that, you know, especially when I think about myself at 15 and 12, mm-hmm. I don't know how open I was to receiving things. And again, this is this is quite subjective. Right. But, you know, the defining thing for me is that I was I was very small. I was very short. Like and so How tall are you now? I'm probably like six seven. Uh-huh. Um but sitting down. I would more, say- <laughs> I'm I'm five, seven and a half, which is you know I'm still a short person because yeah. I still give myself the half. Yeah. It's like when a kid's like, Oh, I'm eight and a half. I'm like, Yeah, you can just call it eight kid. Yeah. All right. You'll be nine or eventually. nine, whichever you want, <laughs> yeah. but stop. We round down here. Yes. That's how it works. Um <laughs> So, but I was probably like five feet, five foot one, right? Up through my second or third year of high school. You know, I was a very late bloomer. Like I hit puberty really late. So, do you feel like when you look back, like were they going to endocrinologists and having your hand X-rayed and sort I, I, of? I did go to. I remember going to a specialist um, at the University of Virginia, and you know, like they, they X-rayed my bones, right? My my like my growth plates, yeah. Um, Which kind of gives them an idea of how tall you will be, right? And my my dad is six three, and my mom is five six. I have an older sister who's five eleven and a half, and a younger sister. My younger sister is five nine. So clearly, otherwise it would have been too easy for me. So, yeah. So the good Lord said, yeah, uh, let him be. Um, but yeah, I remember that. I don't know how old I was then, but I'm. I, it feels to me like I was probably like in fourth, fifth, or sixth grade, right. somewhere around there, so 10, 11, 12. Right, where a pediatrician was like, maybe you should check this out. And yeah, see, or, yeah, or like, maybe he'll grow a little bit later. Right. Um, and, and then all of a sudden, you find yourself, you know, in, in high school or college, and you're actually just the same height as everybody else. Yeah. But you still think of yourself in yeah. this way. And so, um, so I feel like I probably had more conversations about that that was probably more painful for me than anything you yeah know, it was just you know I was like a pretty well-liked kid um it certainly forced me to hone my joke telling because I'm like well you better tell a joke because yeah. they're not with you because you're tall right because that's really all anybody cares about in high school is yeah I guess so <laughs> Sidwell friends let me tell you <laughs> it's rough yeah when you're the walking home with your short streets. legs <laughs> yeah. uh, these streets of Wisconsin yes, Avenue <laughs> it's rough um so I you know it's it's really interesting because my nephew the the eldest now William is 11 mm-hmm and I think about where I was at that time, because I feel like what happens if you're 12, 13, 14, 15 is there are certain kids that are there and feel like they're still holding on to their childhood. Right. And there are certain kids there that are already yeah. sort of leading into Certainly their, more you know, mature their teenage than that. years. Yeah. And I was a kid, was probably in the middle, but probably closer to wanting to stay a, a kid because I was... Uh, it just it was more familiar to me, and I was afraid of what was ahead. And like my friends who had neck beards at 14, like that was anathema to me. Right. Um. So that, you know, 12... You know, 12 is an age where you can meet someone who's 12 and and they are acting like they're 16 or you meet someone who's 12 and, and they're maybe, you know, more they comfortable. They feel 10. Yeah, 10. So I remember being someone that was really acutely aware when my friend 
Thomas that I mentioned called me one day and he said, hey, do you want to hang out? He didn't say play anymore. Right. It's and not it a play date. Like, I was, it was probably like 11 or 12. And yeah. I thought, and I felt something in me shift. Wow. I, you I, remember I like, that. I was like, oh, we're not, we're not allowed to say play anymore. Yeah. And I remember even like for six months after when I would call him, testing it out and saying, hey, do you want to play? And seeing if he would say that's not what we do anymore because it was starting to, it was starting to change. Yeah. Um, so I didn't, I didn't necessarily receive anything from my parents. They sat me down and said, hey, this right. is what I think is going on. But I just, I remember them just being very present for me and, and my sisters, you know, that if I wanted to talk, they, they would. But like, I wasn't from a family where we sat and had like long chats. No. No, like, were you waspy Jews? No, no. Uh, we were. Um, I, you know, I wasn't bar mitzvah, or and my sisters were. Are both your parents Jewish? My by, parents are by birth. Jew- yes. Yeah. And my father went to Hebrew school till he was eighteen, and my mom was bat mitzvah in nineteen fifty eight. So that's wow. pretty hardcore. Yeah. Um, and they both, uh, I think, had relationships with their own religion that allowed them to see when we were growing up that they wanted to be our choice. Mm-hmm. And I was much more interested in chasing a soccer ball around on Saturdays than going than to the school. Torah. Yeah. Um, so, I, I, you know, I was I was identifying a lot of the things in my family as, oh, well, that's what my family's like. And then when I went to Sidwell in seventh, eighth grade and started going to the mitzvah circuit, right. I was like, oh, maybe that's what it means to be Jewish. Yeah. Um, and, you know, my grandmother who's still- Denominations her, of 18 yeah. dollars as <laughs> yeah, gifts. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I was like, really? An envelope? You, yeah. You didn't tell me there was this. Um <laughs> But, you know, my grandmother still lights the candles on Friday night. Yeah. You know, so, um, and... Is there any part of Jewish culture or ritual that's a part of your life? Show business. Uh-huh. And, and I daven when, I, when I'm in rehearsal. Every time. That's but what really, Mandy said. But I really do. In like, what I way? Really, I just, like, I'm... And back I'm, and forth I, rocking. Well, I, yeah, I, I back and forth rock a lot, too. Yes. Really to the annoyance of everybody. Um, but, no, I mean, I think, you know, when I started working on In the Heights... You know, which I first heard in 2000, then we started working in, in 2002. So I was 22 or 23, and I remember reading this early draft of this script that Lynn had written when he was in college, and I never met Lynn in college. Right. You guys met after college. We met right after college, Did yeah. you have a mutual friend who was the connector? Um, I had two friends. I started a theater company called Backhouse Productions in 2001 with my friend Anthony Veneziali, John Buffalo Mailer, and Neil Stewart. And were you all Wesleyan we graduate? All, all graduates. Yeah. Anthony a year older than me, John and Neil younger. John and Neil saw in the Heights. So they were still there. And they're the ones who called me and said, Hey, this kid Lynn wrote this show. Mm-hmm. It's really good. When we start that theater company that we always talked about late at night, right. we should we should remember this. So okay. they were the ones that really tipped me off to it right. in 99, 2000. And I remember reading the dinner scene as it existed in that early draft and it was a lot of people speaking very loudly and trying to express affection but kind of arguing with each other with a certain with, love. with a certain kind of starch. Yeah. And I was like, oh if you switch the starch, that's my family. Okay. And so I started to identify with my Jewishness, I think, in a more cultural way once I graduated um, from from college and and got to New York and you know and find myself um, you know thinking about what it what it means to be Jewish now as a 42-year-old man right. uh, in a very different way than I did then. Um, but, you know, I I always felt very connected to it once it was identified for me. Right. But it was not something that existed in, in its religiousness. It was more in, like, who my family was, what my grandparents believed in. Right. And, then and I what ha- your history is. And what my history is. Right. So it really was You can't, it, you know, whether you like it or not, there are there are generations before us who That's right. and I became went through a lot. incredibly interested in that once I yeah. was old enough to recognize it. And in fact, I had a great aunt named Sally Gross who passed away in August of 2015. And she was a really wonderful artist who lived in the West Beth for 25 years. Oh, like wow. Hardcore Henry Steet Settlement, ju- yeah. like, you know, Merce. Like, you can, you can look her up. She's actually pretty, she was pretty well known. Um, Maisel's made a documentary about her called The Pleasure of Stillness in 2007. And my Aunt Sally was my mom's favorite. She was the youngest daughter on my mother's side okay. of, the, of the my grandparents. So my, my grandmother was the eldest and Aunt Sally was the youngest. So she's your great aunt. She was my, your mother's aunt and your great aunt. That's right. And okay. she was my mother's favorite aunt. And, yeah. she, and Sally was the total black sheep who you know grew up on the Lower East Side and decided to dance, went to Hunter. And... I remember watching this documentary, which I think came out in 2007. It might have been 2006. And so it was just before In the Heights happened um, off-Broadway. But I'd been working on it for four or five years. And and there was a, a scene, which I'll paraphrase, but Aunt Sally is telling the story of getting her first grant from the NEA. 
and her mother, who only spoke Yiddish and couldn't read English, but did the books for her husband, who sold fruit on the street, knew, knew numbers and knew bookkeeping. And she got this check for a couple thousand dollars. And her mother starts weeping and says to her in Yiddish, only in America will they give you money for moving your feet. Right. And I, I started sob, like sobbing when I saw this. Like something was unlocked in me. And I realized that if not for Sally, there is no me. If not for my great grand, you know. So I started to feel this connection to them. And, uh, and I think being in New York City had a lot to do with it. Because as my, my, my mom's mom lived on 6th and D. And she said she met her husband, my grandfather, uptown on 13th Street. Right. Um, like, no one went above 14th Street. No, no. And they met at the, you know, the Y down on, like, 14th, which is, like, as far uptown as she'd ever sure. been. And so being able to walk the streets of New York and see where they were from and my other grandparents on the other side, also from New York. So I think getting to the city and, and being uh, being able to breathe the same air and be in the same neighborhoods started to connect me even more. Well, we jump cut a little bit to your post-college experience. And I know just from reading about you and, and looking at other interviews that something happened while you were in school. It wasn't that you were a theater major, but suddenly a friend invited you to work my on friend, their project. My friend Anthony, yes, who yes. I mentioned, yes. Who is still... Well, he's in Freestyle Love Supreme. I right. started Freestyle Love Supreme right. with Anthony and Lynn. I feel like... Um, Maybe we could talk a little bit. Listeners are just going to be like, they've been talking for half an hour, and maybe they haven't even said the word Hamilton. And I just want to say good for us, because I'm, this is probably we're holding hands. The, best, the first interview post-Hamilton that that's happened for. So good for us for holding out that yeah. long. Um, but we did say the name in the Heights, and now we'll get to Lynn a little bit, and Anthony. Yes. And this amazing group of people who decided, like, we're going to make our own stuff. Yes. Because I feel like that's how you have to start, unless you have the last name. Coppola or Scorsese or something like that. Is that like what you that. did when, when you started doing this? The Levines. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not no. your last name. I mean, did you just start, did you have like a theater company or a group that you just Naked Angels. Okay, I was so part of this theater company, then, Naked Angels. Yeah. Heard and, of them? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and slowly certain members of our company became right. super famous. Right, it was like Drama Department and Naked Angels yep. at that time and like Malpart and all those. And yeah. Atlantic, which Atlantic. is still an sure. unbelievably successful off-Broadway company that moves so much stuff to Broadway. But we really lucked out. You know, so much of stuff happens because there's this one lucky component one of the members of Naked Angels had an uncle mm -hmm. with a huge space on 17th Street. Right, so you could have your We evenings. had a home. Yeah. We had a home. And so without that, it's very hard. You're sort of gypsies running around. But when you have a home base, you can have a clubhouse of sorts. So I That was the drama like, bookshop for us. Yes. So talk a little bit about where you landed and the luck of having a place like that and then in the Heights and on and on. Well, and look, on. you... You said the thing that I always think about, which is that's what distinguishes all of us wandering around on the diaspora, yeah. is you have a place you can go. Yeah. Um, Anthony, my junior year of college, asked me to work on his senior project, which was this very loose adaptation of Hamlet Machine. Mm -hmm. And the first person we cast was Neil Stewart, and the last person we cast was John Mayer. No, the first person we cast was John Mayer. The last person we cast was Neil Stewart. So it really so begins that's what, that's the family. Yes. Yeah. And it was all student theater. So this was from six to midnight. They would give you a little rehearsal space and you'd go do it in that barn or in that dorm or yeah. in that theater. So it wasn't through the institutional um, uh, academic side of the theater department. I took one class my sophomore year and that was it. And, and really Anthony pulled me into this group. I met these two others. And, and you know, in that show, and I think there's footage of this somewhere, we would freestyle to get warm in front of the audience. And I was Anthony's assistant director. So Were you good? Are you a good freestyler? I'm, I'm okay. I mean, I'm better than some people that do it, but I should not be doing it uh, for people that are paying money. Okay. <laughs> Only um, for benefits. I will definitely do it for benefits, okay. <laughs> um, but not the same benefits. Yeah. Um, and so we met on this. We had this kind of instantaneous bond. And then Anthony graduated in 98. I graduated in 99. I went to go work as an ASM at this theater company called the American Stage Company in Teaneck, New Jersey. And I drove... I'm from Teaneck, New Jersey. Really? FYI. The 07666? Uh, yes. <laughs> the zip code. Did you do a lot of mailing for them? Yes. Are you kidding me? That's... Uh, we had to try that's to raise... What it, that's yeah. what we It was did. an FDU. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, I... I learned to drive in Fairleigh Dickinson and also other things happened in that parking lot that we'll redacted. talk about. Redacted. <laughs> 
I'm going to call you after and ask you to take that out uh, of oh this podcast. God, yes. So good. Teaneck. Yes, Teaneck yes, for the um, win. Noah's Ark Deli. Oh, um, my God. So, so yeah, so I was there for a year and a half, and okay. that was basically my grad school. We did eight or nine shows. Living in Manhattan and, and no, no, living, living in Teaneck? Living in uh, Hackensack for six months. Born in Hackensack. Thank um, you. Yes. I knew I felt a kinship to you. Yes. Living in Paramus for six months yes. and living in Teaneck for First six job, months. Paramus Park Mall yes. to be continued. So, okay. I, so I was there for that year and a half, and, okay. and I started as the ASM. And I made $100 a week before taxes, so um, $84 after taxes. So and your parents are helping you? My, I asked my parents. My rent was $500 a month. Right. And I was living in a basement apartment with no windows and only mirrors in this, this older woman's house. <laughs> Back and um, and you could it's only, all awful. You could only enter through the garage. Very Laverne and Shirley. Think about that for yeah. a second. Yeah. That was not... No. A cool place to have your friends come over. No. Um, and I said to my parents, How'd it go with the girls? Well, uh, I don't even know. There was like, I was driving a van. Let's, okay. let's put it this way. Like, okay. I, that, was my, um, that was my period of like trying to learn how to do this. And, um, and I just worked and worked and worked. And I said to my parents, If you can help me with my rent, if you can give me $500 a month, I want to pay for everything else. Got it. So that was the deal I made with them. And I lived on that $84. And I, I still cannot eat Camel's Chunky Soup, tuna fish, or SpaghettiOs because it's the only thing I ate. I mean, it's the, too bad because those three are delicious. <laughs> no ramen. For two years. You weren't a ramen guy. I was not a ramen guy. Okay. It, wasn't, it wasn't filling enough. Yeah. I needed some more SpaghettiOs. protein. SpaghettiOs. Yeah. Um, the sauce. I just had a <laughs> recollection yeah. of that sauce. So- okay. By the way, it still tastes like that. Yeah. Um, so I worked at this little theater company, and while I was there, my friends called me and said, hey, this kid wrote this show, and I was driving a 15-pass van, and I answered the phone. I said, I'm the professional. I'll tell you if it's good. Yeah. And they said, are you in a van? I was like, no, I'm getting a ride. <laughs> um, and I'm I, not driving and talking on a phone. Yeah, no, I'm not. I used to pick up the actors at 42nd and 9th and 96th and West End and bring them back into the city. And a couple things happened when I was there, and all of a sudden there was um, – there was a promotion. The guy who had hired me was then promoted to artistic director. So after my first show there, which was a new musical by Jody Pietro, uh, and a guy named Michael Valenti, I was the ASM on it, based on O'Henry short stories. Um, I was I was promoted very quickly after assisting the director there to become the associate artistic director, and I just turned 23. That's unbelievable. So I sounded like a grown-up on the phone, and then yeah. I'd go to these meetings, and people would ask where my dad was. Yeah. And... What I realized was if you could do your job, no one actually cared how old you were. No, right. I looked very, very young back then, but I was in this position where I was the number two at this theater with, you know, what had like a half million dollar budget and we produced four or five shows a year. And I had this gentleman named Matthew Parent who was running it, who really looked out for me and believed in me. And he would, I would go to board meetings and I would, I was the head of the literary department, which is how I know the, that 07666 is never yes. going to leave me. Yes. Um, so I would help him pick the plays. I would sit in on casting. I would help him write the brochure. I, I would do everything. There were like six or seven of us that worked there. And then he let me direct on the second stage. I and, just need to interrupt you. When you're from Teaneck, you actually say 07666. And I say zero? You're saying 07666, which is correct. Yeah. But I just want you to know for street cred. I'm, I'm a carpetbagger. I'm not claiming. <laughs> I just said I was there. I was passing through. I if they want to name know, something after me, that's fine. <laughs> Dude, you got to tell the guy 07666. Got it. And yeah, then it'll well, just be Because it's another chance real. to say oh. Exactly. I, I understand exactly. That. Okay, please continue. It's um, a great Bergen story. Bergen County, super proud of you, okay? Exactly. Um, okay, thank super you. Super proud of you. Thank you. I took 17 to 4. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. Incredible. I can do that drive with my eyes closed. And I would go two to four times into the city to go pick up actors. And then what I would do is after. I would drop off our actors at 96 and West End at yeah. 6.30. I would have my friends meet me at 7, and I would drive them back to Teaneck, and we would rehearse in one of the little spaces we have, and then I would drive them back to New York. And are you rehearsing Freestyle Love Supreme? Uh, is it I named would, yet? Or? It is not named yet. Freestyle Supreme didn't start for a couple years. My company was called Backhouse Productions. We were in the very early days. We rehearsed some of the early work that we did out there, and then I did a production of Chris Durang's For Whom the Southern Bell Told. Uh-huh. But I did it on the set and the stage right after a production of Glass Menagerie that I was stage managing, and I couldn't figure out why the director was so upset with me. I was like, well, now I look back, I'm like, Tommy, you directed a parody yeah. of their show. Yeah. You're making fun of us. Three minutes after the curtain went up. For the same audience. For the same audience. I was like, you're an absolute <laughs> maniac. And you're I, a jerk. Yeah. I, yeah. Was like, I was like, what's the matter with everybody? Yeah. This seems like it's funny. Um, and so I would- It was. It, by the way, it played. Yeah. Um, so I did that, and then I rehearsed some of these little plays that I'd written. So I would write stuff because- So this is the beginning of you directing. This is the beginning of me directing. Both your own stuff exactly. and classic text. And <laughs> classic Classic Christering. Southern Bell. Christ- Christering classic text. Durangian text. Yeah. And then um, my other friends graduated in 2000. Uh, I moved into the city in March of 2001. The theater out there closed. And so it kind of forced me to go and start this next part of my life. 
And my friend John Mailer wrote a play called Hello, Herman. And John was a member of the actor's studio, uh, playwright director's unit. And so Estelle Parsons led us to a reading of this play at the actor's studio. And Estelle was a really early mentor of mine. <gasps> and she was very, very kind to me. And and I had an, a meeting with her on a, on a Monday right after my theater closed on that Sunday. And the theater was just going to close to kind of raise some money and reopen, and, and it never reopened. The American Stage Company. American Stage Company, yeah. yeah. And they had done Forever Plaid, mm-hmm. the initial production of Forever Plaid, Over the River and Through the Woods, I Love You, You're Perfect. Like, shows that came to New York. And like, right. But it just... It, just, um, it, it couldn't continue. It couldn't continue. Um, and I went into the actor studio on a Monday, as I remember, maybe it was a Tuesday, and had this meeting with... Uh, Estelle and my friend John. I remember Rip Torn like wandered in and then wandered out, and I was obsessed with with the American theater. Like all I did was read about it because I. Well, didn't now you're study catching it. up, right? Yeah, you're ex- like exactly. reading all the grades. Exa- I became and, yeah. like a zealot, right? So like you know, reading about all of these people that I had never learned about formally. Um, I was an American history major, um, a very mediocre one, although it seems like it was a it's a, a good, good idea for them now. But yeah. trust me, they weren't really cheering me then. Yeah. Um, and and Estelle called me the next morning and she said, "What are you doing for lunch?" And I said, well, I'm, I'm free because I have no job. And she said, well, come in. I want to take you out to eat. And she took me to the Westway Diner, and she asked me what it meant to be a director. And I answered and it took about three minutes. And she said, okay, so you don't know yet. Right. But I think you might be able to learn. You should come by and sit in to the studio on Tuesdays and Fridays. Just watch the acting Just classes. Just watch the acting classes and watch the session. You know, as And was she teaching the class? She would be leading some. Arthur Penn led some. You know, Harvey Keitel led one. It was really... Cool. And it was a, and this is not something that they did frequently to let someone participate just by watching, and she was so kind to me. And to your point, she gave me a place to go. Right. And it was around that time, in that summer of two thousand one, where a guy named Alan Hubby, who was running the drama bookshop, and it right. was moving from Forty Seventh Street to its location on Fortieth Street. He was invited through my friend John Mailer to come see these four one acts we did. You know, we did two David Ives and. Um, maybe 15-minute Hamlet, you know, like these short plays with a bunch of our friends from Wesleyan. And he said, I want to have a resident theater company at this new bookshop. Would you come by and see? And we walked the bookshop that summer, and it was a white room with a lot of dust in it. And he said, if you paint it black, it's a theater. And if you keep it busy, that would be you paying rent. And so in the fall of 2001, we rehearsed Hello, Herman, which we put up at the Grove Street Playhouse. We started rehearsal on September 18th of of that year. Um, And... We rehearsed at the bookshop as it was being built around us. The bookshop opened on December 3rd, 2001. And we had opened our first show. Um, you know, we raised $17,000, which we, you know, spent and lost all of. But we had our first thing. On and beer. On, just on the beer alone. <laughs> and what was, what was important for me is our show was, was reviewed and not particularly Who reviewed well. reviewed it? Uh, Bruce Weber. Uh-huh. Uh, and Donald Lyons for The Post. Because John was Norman Mailer's youngest son, we probably got a little more attention than we were ready for. Right. And Bruce Weber wrote a review that basically said, this is a valiant effort, but you guys need to continue to develop. And it was not a pleasant review. I think it was something that was incredibly seminal for me because I remember it was like getting punched in the face. Like we had given everything Mm -hmm. to this thing. and, And the next morning I remember I woke up and... I remember walking by you know, those green New York City wire trash cans, and there was some newspaper in there. And I thought, oh, right. Now it wraps the fish. That's right. Guess what? We got to go and do the show. Yeah. And it was. What a great thing. And that it was really happened. important to get yeah. it dinged around. You're, I was 24 years old, and guess what? I was still there the next day. Yep. And you realize, like, okay, you reset your nose, yeah. you wipe the blood off, and you, then you go to work. Yeah. And that company needed me, and we needed each other, and we went and we did our play. And then on December 3rd of 2001, we did a small excerpt from Pfeiffer's People. We had done a production of Pfeiffer's People my senior year, and I'd called Jules Pfeiffer. I got his number from, like, a random connection, and I called him over Thanksgiving break of my senior year, and he picked up the phone, and he talked to me for an hour. And, I mean, I cold-called Jules Pfeiffer. And he couldn't come see the production, but he said, well, read some stuff to me and tell me about it. What do you think? And then when we did our first play, Hello, Herman, we wanted to do another one. We thought, well, why don't we remount Pfeiffer's People? Right. It's, it's, a, it's a place where we can use our new theater. It can be the first thing in our home, as yeah. you had mentioned with, with Naked Angels. And we were building this little clubhouse for us. And we thought, let's produce it down there for the 55 people we can get in. And you got permission from the Pfeiffer I, estate, I Jules Pfeiffer? Him, I called him back. Yeah. And he said, yeah, I remember you. 
come over. And I walked into his apartment about a week later. and Little Hallie Pfeiffer's. And Hallie <laughs> Pfeiffer was 17 years old. Oh and she opened the door. And she's like, oh, are you here to see my dad? <laughs> and I was like, yeah. And I walked in. I saw Jules. And he said, my only condition is that you audition my daughter Hallie, who's a junior in co- uh, high school, excuse me, at Horse Man. And m- my show was eight people in the cast. We needed one more um, woman. And there was seven Wesleyan graduates. And then I auditioned Hallie. And I was like, I can't believe this nepotism. Yeah. And then she came and auditioned for me, and she opened her mouth, and mm-hmm. I thought she is so much better than everybody else in our right, show. Right, And she'd been speaking this Fiferian language her whole life. Yeah. And Hallie was in our show, high school wow. Hallie. I ended up writing her college recommendation. She ended up going to Yale. She's oh like my, my little sister. Oh I, my God. I love Hallie Pfeiffer. That's a, I well, love her, love her. That's amazing. And um, and so we did this little production down in the basement of the bookshop, and the bookshop was our home for five years. That's where In the Heights Was started. that your first full-length play? After the Hello Herman was. Yeah. 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 And this one also wasn't reviewed by everybody. So it let us kind of cut our teeth. So now we started getting our hours in. You know, the thing is, we sort of, we got reviewed by the Times when I'd had 112 hours yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and not 10,000. Not 10,000. And then we started just making things down there and also renting the space to people and helping them support it. So the Debate Society met when we rented the theater to them. You know, uh, Billy Eichner would come and perform before Free Cell of Supreme doing his, like, Billy on the street thing where he'd run around with a yeah. camera. And we'd like, all right, Billy, because there was a lot of Northwestern energy around there. My friend Sam Foreman, who ended up introducing me to the Striking Viking Story Pirates, okay. who then ended up taking over for that us space. when we left yep. that space. So still, that's how... Still there. Yeah, Lee Overtree and, yeah. and, and Jamie Salka and all those folks. So that's how I got to know the Story Pirates through the Northwestern people. And so at some point, Lynn comes in with, with the script of In, in the May Heights. In 2002, yeah. I love that you know... My husband is like this, too. Like, he has the date for everything. Mm-hmm. Um, if you asked me like what year my daughter was born, I'd have to like call him and ask what year my, so right. you love dates. It was 15 years ago. Right. But, but Plus I nine mean, months. that's when your daughter, right. but, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. I feel like you were there. Yeah. Um, I mean, just this incredible, um, desire to hold on to things that are important in that way. Yeah. Because like, what we do is so transient. And so I, I went up and met Lynn at the end of May. He came in in June um, and we sat down, and and the, our joke about it is we had a conversation that lasted for seventeen years. Yeah. Um. You know, up until last night at eleven when I was talking to him, and this morning when we were texting about something. So we just never stopped talking. And and I'd been thinking about in the Heights from two thousand to two thousand two. And so he's like, "Hey, I just graduated. I'm pretty hot shit." And I was like, "I have some thoughts about the opening number." He's like, "Whoa, this kid's coming in real hot." <laughs> yeah. Um. And I was. Um. And so, so Lynn agreed to let us work on the show, and we started developing it down in that little basement. And yeah. That's that's where all those early readings of Heights were. Yeah. That's where I first met Mandy Gonzalez. <sighs> she walked into that. I remember her coming in. That's where Chris Jackson walked in. That's where I saw Chris Jackson meet his wife when she had played Nina for us. So I have. And in, in like a boatload of memories from the basement of that place. And so how are you finding, how are you and Lynn kind of finding this company of people who are with you now for a long time, coming in and out and intersecting in all sorts of ways and projects? One at a time. Yeah. You know, so probably the same way that you did. Like someone said, hey, have you met? Hey, right. have you met? So Have you met my friend David? That's right. Um, yeah. Yeah. And which is a pretty good story. Yeah. Anthony introduced us to David. And so in 2002. Anthony Ramos. Um, I, I was Anthony Viniciali. Oh, oh, sorry. The, the original, the original Anthony. Okay. Um, Lynn had a friend named Bill Sherman who he went to school with. Bill Sherman said, yeah, I'll work on the music. And Bill, of course, ended up. Working on a lot of music. Working on a lot of music. Um, we had a, a woman in the cast named Janet DeCall and a guy named Henry Gainza, who are both from the Miami area. And we met them like we put ads out in backstage yeah. and auditioned people. Um, Doreen Montalvo was the first person to audition for us, I remember. And Doreen was with us for, you know, the next eight years with Heights. And Janet said, I have a friend who used to play all the local shows named Alex Lackamore. You should meet him. He really knows pop music. He really knows musical theater. He really knows Latin music. And so we reached out to Alex through Janet and he said, hey, I'm uh, I'm associated on this new show called Wicked and we're going out of town. And I was like, yeah, well, call us when you get back. That's yeah. never going to last. Yeah. Um, and we had right sent again. Him, we had sent him a, a demo and he really liked it. But he's like, I got to go do this thing. We're going out of town in San Francisco. And then when he came back and was sort of more on the ground and, and playing keys there, he said, hey, I, I think I'm ready to kind of pick my head up and start working on this. So that's how we met Alex. Jill Furman introduced us to Kiara. Dur- uh, pr- Jill Furman's Jill a producer. Furman, yes, one yep. of our um, initial producers, the first one to see it, who then told Kevin McCollum about it, who told Jeffrey about it. So it was um, it was really like piece by piece, you know, and with each of those folks, you know, it was a friend of a friend or someone who walked in the door. Right. Um, and, and it just, 
you know, and I remember there was someone I asked who couldn't do it and said, you know, Andrea Burns, you should have her do it. And like, and then you just start to accumulate. You know, I remember Robin DeJesus, who we met, um, I think through the O'Neill. And then eventually he said, you have to meet my friend, Josh Henry. I just did Godspell with him. I remember Josh Henry walking in the room for the first time, you know, so it just, it just accumulated this momentum. And one of the things that we were pretty good about was identifying these like-minded fellow travelers. Mm -hmm. And that show had an energy to it that just found a certain kind of person. And when did Andy, like choreographers uh, extraordinaire, come into your through, life? Um, through Jeffrey and Kevin, um, Andy tells the story that he really wanted to do High Fidelity, so he took yeah. a meeting with us just to get to know So, so Kevin, and, Kevin and, and, Jeffrey. and Jeffrey produced Rent. Correct. So suddenly your first musical at the Out of the Gate is being produced by the guys who produced Rent. Yes. That must have been an extraordinary realization to wrap your brain around at that time. Well, I think I was probably protected by the fact that I wasn't a show kid. Right. So it didn't really... You weren't out of your I, mind. I knew what Rent was. Yeah. I was very aware of it, yeah. but... It's not like Larry Bird was now producing your... No, no. I yeah. would soon work with Larry yes, Bird, exactly. but not yet. Um, so, no, I, I, was, I was like, oh. Great. Rent was good. Like, Rent's still on. <laughs> like, that was a show that inspired Lynn. You know, it was by, it was by sure. a young person that So maybe no for knew. Lynn, it was pretty incredible. It was... In, it was uh, it was incredibly weighty to Lynn and not to me. Right. Um, and so I think I was So you could behave like a normal person. Yeah. 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 I was, I was like, they seem really smart and they're, they're definitely supportive of us and they're not asking us to change things. They're asking us what we want to do. And that feels like a, a good partnership. So by the time In the Heights is nominated for a Tony Award, you're nominated for a Tony Award. Your, your show wins. Mm -hmm. That's your first Broadway. That's your first show, basically. Right. Um, that's very heady. Yeah, I, again, you know, I was 31 I was 30 when the show was off Broadway and 31 right. when the show opened on Broadway, which is pretty young for a director and and I I didn't know any better. Yeah. Um but I remember this moment very clearly of being on stage at Radio City and we're the Tonys and we had just won and they pick Lynn up and he says thank you and everybody's very emotional and we're all together on stage. And then Whoopi Goldberg says, okay, we'll see you next year. And I remember in one instant, the lights shift, everybody gets up, starts walking out, and everyone leaves stage, and I stayed there. And I just stayed there by myself. And I watched everyone empty out and talk about whether they're going to have chicken, yeah. you know, or Which what the party show is next or year. Whatever. And, yeah. and, and I thought, well, if this, is, if this is a pinnacle, it's also over in an instant. Yeah. And people are already thinking about what's next, so it can't be about this. It, it has to be about something more than this. And I, I was never, I never had any idea of what it meant to, to win an award. It was just, it wasn't something that I, I aimed for. Um, and then I found myself incredibly moved and relieved because I knew if you won the Tony for best musical, it meant your show could run, which meant you could make a living. Yeah. That, that was a significant thing because all of that work can dissipate. Um, and this meant maybe we'd run for a year, which meant maybe we could save a little bit of dough and maybe the, we would all have a chance to work and, and have another thing. And then the next day I went to Williamstown to go work on a play and I started rehearsal 10 a.m. on Tuesday and they all looked at me and said, okay, where do you want to start? And it was the absolute best thing to mm -hmm. do 36 hours after being at this other place. Yeah. So guess what? You got to go back to work. You got to start over. And that, and that award, winning that award or losing that award isn't going to make your next show. Like that, that stays there. And now right. who are you? What do you do next? So, when is there's been so much said about Hamilton? Hamilton, but is, not by us. But not by us today. Yes. Um, I guess I want you to just. So when I say Hamilton, go. I don't really remember a time before it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's so present in my life, in so many ways, and. I know I was defining myself before the show happened. I was 38 when the show opened. I was a grown person. Yeah. It didn't happen to me when I was 22. It didn't happen to me when I was a teenager. Right. I'd put 15 years into this business. I'd, I'd worked as hard as I could for 15 years. Everybody thought we were out of our minds when we would tell them about this, this idea we had. I mean, people were not staying on the elevator with us when right. we told them. Um, but but, but a few and, people did. But Jeffrey and Jill were. Um, and I realized in this business, you hear no a hundred times for every maybe, but sometimes all it takes is a maybe. Mm -hmm. And and I had no idea that what was going to happen 
was in my future, but I knew that Lynn was working in a way that I had not previously seen. I knew that that would force me to try to reach to to be on that same level. And I had to put together a group of people around him that could actualize this thing that he was making and and inspire him and enhance it and support him. Because when we started for two years, it was just me and Lynn. There was mm-hmm. nobody else. It was mm-hmm. just like us for a couple years kicking it around, talking about ideas. Maybe this is a song. Maybe she's a character. Maybe he could do this. Do you write also? Um, I write enough to, because I wrote a lot of my early stuff, right. so um, that I have a a sense of what it takes. So I think that informs how I give notes. Um, so you weren't writing it with him. You were was, audience to it. I, yes, and that's that's right. That's right. And we would talk about everything. Collaborator. Maybe this, you know, we, we both read the book. Right. And I said, I have one read without you in my head. So I'm going to write down everything I think is a song or a scene or a character we should have. And you do the same and let's see where we overlap. Okay. So, so I, I you know, I'll be prescriptive in the way I'll say, I think this could be this, but I also know that my job is to try to, elicit something and, you know, and poke around in there and see what he comes back with. Um, but I'm not, I'm not someone who just asks dramaturgical questions. Like I will also say it could be this or it could be this mm-hmm. or it could be this. What and, if if I she... see, and if I see if his eyes light up, I say, yeah. great, you're feeling something, go. Yeah. Like I'll see you in a week. Yeah. I'll see you in four days. Talk Is that what you. it looks like? Is it an eye light? I mean, it's gotten pretty subliminal with me and Lynn. Like there've been times in rehearsal where he looks at me and he says, I know. And I was like, you don't know what I'm going to say. <laughs> and he says, I'm going to write it down. And then I open it up and I was like, okay, Next guess, you know, yeah. like, and he's like, of course, like right on it. So it's, um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I, I don't know how to characterize our collaboration other than I, I just remember meeting him and thinking, oh, you've been somewhere else my whole life and I just didn't know you. And now I know you and, and, and ev- everything that Lynn does outside of me is, is something that like, I buy the first ticket for and I do a lot of stuff outside of him. But when we find each other, something something happens, informed by all those other adventures we have, and I know it 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 feels unlike anything that I've experienced. Mm-hmm. That, that kind of pocket that we go into so immediately. Same thing with Andy, and same thing with Alex, and you know a lot of those collaborators that I've spent so much time with. Is there ever tension? No. Is that really true? Yes. So, why? How is that possible? Because every great. Collabor- creative partnership because I think that's I think that's crap. There's I, I no just, need for it. I just don't think it's necessary. So your egos are not involved. No. Do you think that's the key yes. to it? Because Lindu, I was never trying to fix anything, uh-huh. and I was only trying to help him make something. And I am a absolute like fervent believer that you can make high quality things with harmony. And I will not do the other thing. It doesn't mean that there's not intensity, right? But if there's disagreement, it's or it could be this, or it could be this. Lynn's never raised his voice to me. I've never raised my voice to him. I've never even thought about it. No, I mean, I've never, I don't think I've ever raised my voice in rehearsal. Right. It's just not, I'm just not built that way. I'm not interested in it. I've seen, you know, I played sports. I watched people try to get a certain kind of response and I saw how it happened. And it did not happen from pressure and it did not happen from belittling. It happened when people made the safest possible place. And that's the only way I'm interested in doing things. And it's the only way I'll ever do anything. Right. And and it's it's why working with Say has been so revelatory for me. Because when I I, I got to know Noah Kornman um, yeah. through the In the Heights album when he was still working um, at, uh, at Ghostlight at, at Ghost and, yeah. and the record company. And then I was walking on 18th Street maybe five or six years ago and I bumped into him. And he said, you know, I'm not there anymore. I'm working with this new organization would you ever want to come by? And I, I was, as I told you, camp was a really important part yeah. of my life. And he said, you know, we have this this group and we come in and we have this camp. And I just thought, you know, maybe I'll just stop by. And another friend, um, Annika Chapin, who had done some work with them, and she just said, oh, they're, they're the best. Go in. And I went in that first time just to see what was going on. And it was when they were doing um, the kind of senior project, the graduating projects where they look for people that have done this to help mentor some of yeah. the writer-directors. And, you know, for someone like me whose whole life is communication and trying to say something that will inspire somebody or make someone feel comfortable, I realized how, how much this f- forced me to be conscious in a new way of how I listen and how I respond and how to be there for someone without saying anything. Right. And it really, it changed me. It really changed me. And the thing that's really extraordinary, you know, having spent time uh, also, 
say as an organization, I said earlier, it's really devoted, it, it's creating a safe place for kids who stutter to be themselves, to take as long as it takes for them to say whatever it is they want to say, and to make theater, and to make art, and it's sort of the perfect blend of everything we love, right? Like theater, and family, and safe spaces, and creativity. Um, and Say has created a place that is a, a, a tribe meeting place for people from all over the world for these kids to just have a safe haven. And I'm so thrilled that you're a part of it, that you're going to be honored this month. I, I I'm think, very humbled by that. Well, we're all invited to a lot of galas. Part of being a part of the theater community in New York is you go to a lot of things celebrating all kinds of organizations. And even though it's such um, a luxury, sometimes it feels exhausting, like another benefit. This is my favorite night of the year hands down, like of all the beautiful, incredible things I get to go to, being in the presence of these young people is such an honor. I I know what you mean by saying being humbled, yeah. because it is they who are leading the way for us. Um, you have created something uh, that will last forever. It's very rare to already know at least part of what your legacy will be. While you're living, you talked earlier about like your Aunt Sally and sort of this moment about what it is to be a dancer, where you have to end your career metaphorically die in one way and then really die. And, you know, so much of our life is sort of what will I leave behind. And the fact that at such a young person, you know, you said you were 38 already when this happened, but it's pretty relatively young in terms of the lifespan of an artist and a human. And Tommy the kind of unbelievable work and message that you're putting out into the world already for you to do nothing else, which is not going to be the case. You already, I put out one tweet about Fosse Verdon. It got one million impressions. One million. Really? I'm new That's to Twitter. Lot, right? I think it's a lot. I've heard about Twitter. Right. Lynn, Lynn told me he's on it. Yeah, Lynn's on it, um, leading the charge of, of um, a way to feel good about yourself wherever he is. He's yeah. sending little messages out into the universe that really help people tremendously. And it's funny, I watched a Facebook Live. It's the first one you and Alex did during Hamilton. Oh, yeah, we were back in Alex's. If you're dressing yeah, yeah, room yeah, yeah, or something, yeah. Alex Lacamoire, and, and it's really early days of Hamilton. And at some point, Alex says to a question, well, you'll have to ask Lynn. You, you can ask him on Twitter. And you're like, he's on Twitter? And you're like, yeah, he just joined. And I thought, wow, like he had just joined. And now he's... No, I, I was being facetious. Oh, I thought he had just joined Twitter no, around then. Lynn is looking for applause everywhere. So is that trust true? Me, he was like the earliest of adopters. <laughs> he's like, thing. how can I get global applause? Yeah, yes, yes, yes. Well, and it used to just be regional, and now it's much now it's, louder. It's literally like on Mars. They're yeah. like, "Good morning, good night." One million impressions. Yeah. Well, you're not on social media. I'm not, no. Was that um, a decision that you made early on yes. to not? I never was on Facebook. I never did any. Um, How come? I just wanted to have, um, I don't know, a certain kind of privacy. I, yeah. I, um, I like. Um, I like that I can be quiet and uh, invisible in my work um, as often as possible, and uh, and it just was never never something I was interested. In. Like I I get the appeal of it, yeah. Um, but I also know that it just felt like it was something that I would rather participate from the sidelines on. So when everyone's on their phone on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, what are you doing? I'm googling you. <laughs> Did you Google me before you came here today? I did a, I did a little. I did some light googling. Okay. I did some light googling. Okay. Um. Uh. You know, but I'm I'm not on my phone. That's my weird thing. Right. I'm just thinking deeply about the American theater. I'm really glad. <laughs> so when you leave here today, I know you're going to have some like physical therapy. Yes, I have a bad back. You have a bad back. What are you working on now? What's your I'm, next project? I'm finishing the Fosse Verdon stuff, so I've got a couple more weeks on that, and then I am doing a new musical with MCC by a writer named Ross Golan. And Alex Lackmore is working on it with me. And it's this song cycle thing that we're doing this fall. So I've got a little workshop of that. Um, and and then I'm going to try to take a little time this summer. We've got some some Hamilton uh, stuff in London. I've got to start auditioning again for the new company because it just turns over once a year. So right. I'll go over there. And then I like to travel and go see the show. So I just got back from Chicago yesterday and was there. And I was in uh, Detroit and Chicago about three weeks ago. And I need to get out to San Francisco. So... Um, I like to go and... Your children are everywhere. Well, I have incredible directors who are 
residents and associates that are, you know, one with each that right. I'm in really close contact with. But I like going to visit and, and just checking in and, and seeing if I can be of use. Yeah. Well, I hope you will be of use. So do I. <laughs> My God. <laughs> I have really one really important question before we go. Yes. Um, you have incredible hair. Are there products that you use? There's only one product. What do you use? It's Weedad, O-U-I-D-A-D. And okay. It's a product called Climate Control. Okay. And this is important for curly hair people because I feel like you have figured it out. It, well, it took a it took some experimentation. Sure. A little research and development. So Weedad's product is the only one that I use. Um, and there's another product they have called uh, Hydrofoam, which is probably like the number two option for me. But Climate Control is like a it's like a gel you put in when your hair is wet, and then you just blow dry it with a diffuser. Yeah. And and you don't ever like my hair has never felt a comb. Right. Like you don't, don't touch you don't, it. And you don't touch a curl. No. Stop it. Someone try to cut no, you. No, I'm not. Touch, no, no one will. No, no one, one will. will. And did Although you if you turn... hear people think they can, you're like, you know, I'm a, you should stop that. No, 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 don't. Does Alex Lackmore use the same yes, product? I, I turned him onto it, yes. Okay. Yeah. Well these are the little known facts that people listen to my show yeah. for. Alex is the one with the goatee. I'm the one without so if anyone just ever, in case you ever see them on the street wearing a goatee, then it's not it's not him. Um so thank you for your work. Thank you for um, creating a theater where diversity has become, where a diverse cast is now like front and center in the minds of everyone creating work or going to see work. We notice when it's not there. And so you've really kind of shown shine, shined a light, shown a light. What would it be? Highlighted? I tried hard. <laughs> I, I, uh... To change the vocabulary. <laughs> no, I, I just, it, it, you know, there's some things that felt like they should be. Yeah. That was all. Well, it wasn't obvious um, to everyone, and now it is. So thank you for just changing the landscape in such a magnificent thank way. You. And I can't wait to see what you do next. And this is just not enough time. I hope you'll come back another time. Yeah, t take that, David Corrin. Do you think you get four episodes? Yeah, exactly. Watch, I'm, all of 2020 is just me. It's just on you. Get ready, listeners. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. If you want more information about my guests, go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com. I also wanted to tell you that there is now a new addition to the website. It is a button that says contributions. This podcast is a true labor of love, and I really, really want to keep doing it for a long time. So if you like listening as much as I love to do it, please feel free to contribute. It would mean the world to me. Also, on Twitter, you can find me at Alana Levine. Instagram is Little Known Facts Podcast, and on Facebook, Little Known Facts Podcast. You can also feel free to rate and review the show on the iTunes show page. This podcast is recorded at Hangar Studios in New York City. Do you believe in stories? I know I do. Do you feel like there is more to your story? Personally, I feel like there's more to every story. And I got some good news. There's this great company called The Pocket Media Group, and they can help you find the more in your story and tell it so it connects to the people you most want to reach. They specialize in video, photography, writing, design, branding, and strategy, all the pieces you need to start something new or polish up something old. And they understand that story, whether it's a photograph, a video, or words on a page, powerfully connects people and ideas. So whether you're a not-for-profit, a company, or just good old you with an idea, whatever your story, mission, or message, reach out to the people at The Pocket Media Group at www.thepocketmediagroup.com and let them help you start telling your story. Because look, we know there is definitely more to your story.